0: Hey folks welcome to the real change anthology my name is lily cushman and i'm the producer for the meta hour podcast in celebration of the paperback book release of real change in november of 2021 we've created an anthology of interviews to explore some themes from the book these interviews originally aired in 2020 with Sharon speaking to various folks about the intersection of mindfulness, loving kindness practice and social action. We're delighted to reissue these conversations to you now as a new collection of weekly episodes organized in the following themes. Agency in action, grief to resilience, activism as art, anger to courage, the interconnected world and burnout to balance. For episode two of the anthology, we're exploring the theme, Grief to Resilience. This episode features interview clips from David Desteno, Ellen Agler, Jack Cornfield, Yana Kaiser, Sensei Joshin Burns, Mark Solomon, and Sebene Selassie. Our first clip is from episode 128 of the Met Hour, featuring Sensei Joshin Burns, it originally aired August 11th of 2020. Joshin is a Zen priest, teacher, activist, and the founder of the Breadloaf Mountain Zen Community in Vermont. Joshin maintains a core practice of bearing witness to homelessness by offering street retreats in cities around the country and has spent much of his career working for social change nonprofits in the areas of AIDS, and HIV prevention, child welfare, and community-based philanthropy. In this clip, Joshin shares the way gratitude has helped him to honor both his pain and the beauty of the world as a means for resilience. He talks about the practice of creating beauty every day as an important perspective to maintain as someone who's witnessing the suffering of life. He also shares how appreciation for life can be a place of sustenance. Here's the clip.
1: Yeah, I have a story in my book. There's a chapter um, called something like sometimes just eat the banana, which is about an activist friend of mine who uh, could not allow himself to enjoy anything, including Mm -hmm. bananas, which he really wanted one of because that can be an issue too, you know, right. as that kind of pathological altruism extends, then the denial of joy becomes the thing. Right. It feels too selfish, it feels too wrong, and, right. and yet that right. might be the very thing that will help fill us.
2: Yeah, so glad you raised that. You know, um, one of the practices for me has been a gratitude practice. Learning how to start uh, from a place of gratitude—not Pollyanna utopian gratitude, like you know everything's going to be beautiful and perfect, and there's no problem with the world and how beautiful it is—you know, not not that. But to remember that in the midst of the suffering world, that I have this very life, I've, I have this gift of a life and this breath, and the whole world and everything in it, and the sorrows and the joys. And I'm lucky to have this moment and this experience of life. And from that place of gratitude, I find that I can begin to honor my own pain um, and not feed it so much. And to also see and remember the beauty of the world that I'm in and the beauty of a human life. When I have students, when I formalize a, a student-teacher relationship, which we do in Zen, we make I make ask them for a number of commitments. One of the commitments I always ask for of my students is that they have a regular practice of making beauty, of doing something creative because it's really easy to forget that we have this capacity to actually enjoy our, our, our lives, our senses, you know, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mind are great gifts. And they allow us to appreciate the beauty of things. And I think that's a really important Perspective to maintain if you're going to spend a lot of your time in the hell realms, you know, if 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 you're going to be focusing on the cracks of society and where things, where there's a lot of suffering, to remember that there's there's beauty in this world, and even even in a suffering life, there's beauty.
1: And part of that, I think, openness to joy, uh, for many people, comes from a sense of community, as complicated as communities can be because relationships can be very complicated, but, uh, there's something about that affirmation that, well, that person's kind of afraid to going out into the street or that person, uh, reminded me that, um, you know, there is worth in this, in this uh, homeless person or mentally ill person, not through giving me a lecture, but by telling me that story about their experience. So look what it meant for them.
2: Yeah. 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 Sometimes we get so busy, like fixing the world. We forget to actually see it and appreciate it. You know? Um, Yeah. I remember once sitting in a soup kitchen with somebody and, uh, and I just stopped and sat and ate a meal with him. And in the context of this meal, you know, he was really, I, I didn't really understand what he was saying or, or talking about. To me, it wasn't making a whole bunch of sense. You know, I, I couldn't quite track his, his process or how he was thinking, his train of thought. And instead of like working really hard on it, I remember just stopping and listening to him. Like, almost as if I was listening to music. Like, if it's the first time you're listening to a piece of music, you don't know where it's going, and it doesn't make sense, you know. And I began to appreciate just his voice and the moments when he found humor in what he was saying and laughed. And then, in the midst of all this, like it must have built some kind of trusting relationship because then he pulled out a little notebook that he had been working on that had doodles, and it was a book of scripture that he was writing, mm. that he had read the Bible many times and now was writing his own Gospels. And they were profound, you know, they were really profound. The depth of love that he longed for from the cosmos, totally opened me you know and he was suddenly not somebody i couldn't understand anymore he was a teacher you know he was he was a beautiful person he had a beautiful mind and it was a different way of seeing and being Um, and that teaches me all the time i'm always like since then very conscious of ah this person Mm -hmm. is expressing himself and that's beautiful.
1: I think anyone in a life of service or an act of service comes to realize it's not a one-way street. You yeah. know, it's it's really not.
2: Yeah, so true. Yeah, and in fact, I'm not even sure it's a two-way street. It's, oh no, you know, there's something also maybe hard to describe here, but, you know, Bernie Glassman used to talk about the oneness of life, right? It's unity. Mm-hmm. And I'm a musician, you know, so sometimes I I play music and there's something about being a musician where, you know, once you practice enough, you're not really working super hard on the notes anymore, but you're just doing it Mm -hmm. and you're not really separate from your instrument and you're not really separate from the music and all your senses are engaged and you're just there doing it. You know, it's, it's kind of nothing special. You're just doing it, the music. And sometimes I feel like if I can relax enough in these situations that there isn't a give and take going on so much, but there's just a kind of being with one another in that kind of unified time and space and moment, you know, we're just, we're just talking, we're just having a moment together. We're just, we're just kind of one in a way. And there isn't a lot of self-consciousness there. There's not a lot of like observer looking in on it. There's just the experience and the joy of this encounter. And I find, you know, there's something just real and human and basic about that. It's, it's not extraordinary or <laughs> it's, it's just everyday, ordinary life without all the added stuff. And I find the simplicity of that to be kind of a place of. I don't know if we would call that practice. You know, that's the mind mm-hmm. of of practice.
1: It's very beautiful.
0: Our next clip is from episode 141 of the Meta Hour, featuring Ellen Agler. It originally aired November 16 of twenty twenty. Ellen serves as the CEO of The End Fund, a private philanthropic initiative working to see an end to the suffering caused by five neglected tropical diseases affecting 1.7 billion of the world's most impoverished people, including more than 1 billion children. The END Fund actively supports programs with dozens of partners in more than 25 countries, focusing on sub-Saharan Africa. In her book, Under the Big Tree, was released in January of 2019. In this clip, Ellen and Sharon talk about some important ingredients in their own resilience, like the role models that inspire them to keep going when they feel discouraged, and the importance of impractical joy in daily life. Here's the clip.
1: When I think of resilience, um, I know that for me, it in part has meant having a deepening relationship to joy, and in this particular conversation, I started thinking about inspiration. You know, having a model, having a mentor, having a a picture in our minds of someone or a group that um, lift us when we think about them. I think is a part of resilience. If you feel like you're just struggling and it may seem endless and, and there's not a lot of joy. It's just that much harder.
3: Mm-hmm. So true. Who are those people for you?
1: Well, for me, it would certainly be like my teacher, Deepama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, who is the person who told me to teach, who'd had uh, such tremendous suffering in her life. And, and actually the Dalai Lama as well. And, and maybe the hallmark is someone who's had a lot of suffering in their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, because we don't think of the Dalai Lama that way, but of course it's true for him as well. And, and there's something about both of them that in their displaying of a great lightness of spirit that they don't seem defined by that suffering. They're not avoiding the suffering or denying it, but there's something, you know, you don't, you don't think of being with them and getting increasingly depressed in their presence, you know, it's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. I just think that's such a magical way to live.
3: Like, actually, the wisdom that comes from deep suffering and that idea all of us suffer. Life is 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. But how do you not only live in the place of sorrow and sorrow holding you down? And like, the Dalai Lama is laughing all the time. Oh, I didn't know actually about Deepa Ma until I met you, Sharon. And I read that mm-hmm. short book about her that's so inspiring. What an incredible yeah. woman. I mean, I think that way when I think about you, I just feel like my heart is light. I think about my mom, my 10-year-old daughter. Interestingly, I've been spending time with more animals during COVID. We we didn't adopt a dog during COVID. We actually had one last year, but it's like, I always thought, oh, this is very impractical to have a dog. I travel too much. And mm-hmm. it, but then I just thought, I need more impractical joy in my life. And I used to ride horses a lot when I was a kid and I that's impractical also. And I thought, yeah, but it makes me so happy. So I've been trying to get on a horse once in a while, which has brought a lot of joy.
1: It's fantastic. My friends adopted a puppy, and they, they write about how happy mm. the puppy makes them. And so when I do loving-kindness practice, and as you know, one of the categories is offering loving-kindness to a benefactor that's mm. someone who kind of lifts your spirits. When you think of them. I often use the puppy as <laughs> a you know, recipient. Hmm.
3: What do you think it is for people who experience a great deal of suffering, how not to be weighted by it? I mean, it feels like there is so much suffering going on in the world and this particular time and with COVID and the recession and politics. And, and it's hard for even those of us who have a deep practice not to sometimes just feel kind of overwhelmed by it. But that, that vision of like holding that in an expansive way not attaching to it and knowing that it will also change and this moment will become a different moment and how to still spark joy. I think that's, that really is so much of what your work and your books are about. And I feel like I've given me personally so many helpful tools.
1: That was beautifully said and thank you for, <laughs> for that. And I think, you know, some of it on the practical level is boundaries. Mm. It's, it's wisdom. It means wisdom really, you know, boundaries sounds like a harsh word, but means wisdom you know like we can do what we can do and and i think sometimes certainly in my work um you see a kind of magic or or you see things happen as different conditions emerge that are kind of surprising and didn't feel that fulfilling when you first did them you know whatever Mm -hmm. your action was but it was part of a greater whole that you couldn't sense at the time it was very important that you did what you did, because it was like planting a seed.
0: Our next clip is from episode 135 of the Meta Hour, featuring Jack Cornfield. It originally aired September 28th of 2020. Jack trained as a Buddhist monk in the monasteries of Thailand, India, and Burma. He's taught meditation internationally since 1974, and is one of the key teachers to introduce Buddhist mindfulness practice to the West. He's one of the co-founders of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, along with Sharon and Joseph Goldstein. He's also the co-founder of the Spirit Rock Center in Woodacre, California. Jack's books have been translated into 20 languages, and sold more than a million copies. In this next clip, Jack speaks with Sharon about seeing the path of activism as a path of the warrior, how to navigate rough seas, and how we can all use rituals to support ourselves being witnesses to the suffering in the world. Here's the clip.
4: I have this passage that I've been reading recently by Margaret Wheatley, who is a systems Mm -hmm. thinker and an activist that I'd love to read. Yeah, please. Because it has some elements of what we're talking about. She writes, warriors for the human spirit. So she's using that warrior metaphor, which maybe at this time is needed in some way. Our awake human beings who have chosen not to flee, they abide. So that's the first thing that we say, all right, you know, these are rough seas. We are going to stay on and stay steady. They serve as beacons of an ancient story that tells of the goodness, the renewal, the generosity, and the creativity of humanity. You can identify them by their cheerfulness. You will know them by their compassion. When asked how they do it, they will tell you about discipline, dedication, and the necessity of community. And there's so much in there. I gave a whole talk on it recently, the necessity of community, the, the kind of dedication, but also about cheerfulness in mm. some way. You know, people start to feel bad. Well, oh my God, I have safety. I have sanctuary. I have privilege and all these people who don't. And what do I do? I feel guilty. I feel ashamed that, you know, I have more money or I have access or I this or that. And I think of it differently. I like to say, you've been given an assignment. You've been given this privilege, you know, you didn't earn it necessarily. And with it, you now have an assignment to use that privilege as a bodhisattva, as someone committed to the well-being of all to you, your assignment is to take that privilege and make something beautiful out it out of it for your life and for the life of others.
1: Well, that's lovely. You know, I did a um, workshop the other day, online, of course, um, for these uh, activists in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking that morning, and and based on conversations with um, the person who would invited me, I I thought, who do they remind me of? And I realized they reminded me of caregivers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, it's a funny word, caregivers. I keep wanting a better word, but, you know, the work I've done with international humanitarian aid workers, the work I've done with these days medical personnel or ambulance drivers or whatever. And, and it's some of the same issue, you know, like tremendous empathy, unlike perhaps, you know, the the illustrations we see in this world of people without much empathy and the coldness and the cruelty. It's not that, you know, they have enormous empathy, but they are so tired and burnt out, and and there's something else. And maybe it's the access to joy or remembering the joy, or maybe it's a combination of different things that seems really necessary because it's a long haul to try to make change. Long
4: haul, yeah, it it is. And I don't see the kind of coldness that you describe and cruelty. So Yes, of course, the news picks it up, and any cruel act is magnified by the media. I mean, when I was went to do some peace work in Palestine and Israel um, and, you know, met with different groups and so forth. And then I discovered, oh my gosh, you know, there's the former combatants for peace and there's the bereaved mothers and the sul- sul-ka, Sulkita that brings teenagers together from across the Palestinian and Israeli divide. And the, you know, I met with all these groups and then there's hundreds of groups of people who are creating respect and connection but one person throwing a Molotov cocktail or shooting someone Mm -hmm. that's what gets you know the headline in the New York Times or whatever it is when in fact even as we talk in this time there are a billion acts of kindness of people putting scrambled eggs or rice gruel on the table for their child or Mm -hmm. you know stopping so that someone who's walking slowly can get across the street all right and the coldness and cruelty i mostly only see when people have been really traumatized or desperate and they just close in on themselves and they get into you know fight flight or free but anyway you know you work so much you yourself have been um a wild activist and but whether it's caregivers or you know the places that you've been going where there have been you know gun violence and mass shootings mm-hmm. and all the kinds of things that you've mm-hmm. done. I had this woman that I worked with, who I love, actually. She's really great. She's a psychologist. And for a time, her job was to work with torture survivors. She was a psychologist working for part of the UN. And so you can imagine how difficult that was. Yeah. And she would come to retreat and she would say that, yes, she started to get burned out because it was such a long haul, but also when she got quiet, she would see all the images of the stories that people had told her. And it was just, it was really hard to carry. And I said, well, you're not supposed to carry it. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, describe your office to me. And here's where you sit and here's where your people come in and so forth. I said, all right, behind where you sit, I want you to put a big shelf and on the shelf, I want you to put a statue of the Buddha and one of Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, and one of Mother Mary and maybe a picture of Jesus. And while you're at it, put Kali on there. You're going to need her. And Durga, put some of the Haitian gods because you have these people who survived torture in Haiti. And, you know, a page about the mercy of Allah written in Arabic and a Star of David. And, you know, put Shiva and Vishnu on there and so, because you need backup basically. And when you come into your office, light a candle or make a bow or put an orange or an apple there and say, all right, I will hear these things, but it's for you to carry and not me. And then when people walk in your office, they'll see who's behind you. They'll realize Mm. that it's not just you because we're not supposed to carry this in our own bodies. And so when I talk about working with burnout, again, to activists and groups, There are the beautiful practices that I'm sure you teach of grounding yourself into the earth with roots or sweeping through the body and releasing the tension back to be held by mother earth or making an altar of whatever you believe in. If you're a scientist and you want to put Marie Curie and you know, or you want to put Clara Barton on there started the red cross and so forth. And each day before you start or between your sessions or your responses, You go and you wash your hands and face and make a kind of cleansing and say, I offer this up to be held by whoever you value. And you learn these ways to release, not just from your body, but your heart and mind to say, this isn't mine to carry, it's mine to witness, compassionately to acknowledge, and then to place in the lap of Kuan Yin, the the goddess of compassion or Mother Mary. And we need ritual. It's not just a job we're doing. You know, if you're a first responder, it's not just a job. You're actually, you are in some odd way or some powerful way, you're also a shaman. You're a healer. You're someone who's got the medicine in your fashion and you're tending the world. And therefore, you need the rituals that help you hold this, not as an individual, because it's not meant to be held that way. But to be someone like the midwife who tends the birth of things, and sometimes births are messy and dangerous, and even, you know, sometimes people will die in birth. But you become instead that space that can hold it and allow the mystery to hold this. Because as the Ojibwe say, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And we don't know what's going to happen now. We can do our part and tend the wounded and feed the hungry and tend our own hearts. It's not given to us to control the outcome, but we do get to choose the seeds that we water. And we do get to focus on the value and the rightness and the truth of what we do moment to moment. And that is an enormous gift. That is what we're given. That's beautiful. Thank you.
0: Our next clip is from episode 129 of the Meta Hour, featuring Sevene Selassie. It originally aired August 17th of 2020. Sabine has been teaching meditation workshops, courses and retreats for over a decade, and her first book, You Belong, was released in August of 2020 by Harper One. Sevene has studied Buddhism for over 30 years, and received a BA from McGill University in religious and women's studies and an MA from the New School where she focused on cultural studies and race. Seven a has served on the boards of the New York Insight Meditation Center, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies and the Sacred Mountain Sangha. In this clip Seven a talks about the role that belonging plays in how engaged we are in the world and how our intentions can help us find balance and resilience. Here's the clip.
1: I think that one of the most corrosive feelings any of us can have is a sense of helplessness, hopelessness. And I think there is an interesting connection between our sense of belonging in a group and a sense of agency or ability to affect change. Um, and do you find in your experience that belonging is kind of a prerequisite for community engagement or activism?
5: Yes. I, you know, I think it's a prerequisite for any kind of social engagement and harmony, really, because if we are coming from a sense or an idea of separation, then we're in delusion. We're not Mm -hmm. seeing the truth of reality. And I have this, saying that I say a couple of times throughout the book that although we're not one we're not separate and although we're not separate we're not the same so we have mm-hmm. to be able to understand that paradox that you know fundamentally energetically if you look at science in terms of you know understandings of physics and also in a spiritual sense we are totally interconnected there's actually no separation and the deepest, and ancient indigenous wisdom tells us that. Science tells us that. But obviously, you know, I'm sitting here in Brooklyn, you're in Barrie, Massachusetts. We, we have separate relative realities too. And to lean too much into one or the other really causes that sense of, of dissonance and shakiness in our belonging. Because we can cling to the harmony of, oh, but we're all one and I don't see race and we're all interconnected. Or we can cling to the divisions and the challenges, which, you know, anyone who's done any amount of community or group work, especially in a multicultural context, knows that it's messy at best. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, to really not lose sight of either side of that, we are interconnected, we're not separate, and we have these challenges of, of our differences in, in life.
1: Well, speaking of hopelessness,
5: <laughs> I
1: was interviewed a few weeks ago for, uh, by the New York Times about doom scrolling, which oh, I'd never God. even heard the term before. <laughs> and I thought, what is that? You know? And I decided that's my favorite word. So of course, what it means is just like, say, scrolling through Twitter, or scrolling through social media, looking for one bad story after another. And it was one of our teaching colleagues, yours and mine, that actually recommended to the journalists that they interview me and and I had a lot to say because I happen to do it sometimes. And then when I looked at the article, I was in it and she was not the colleague. So I thought, oh, I wonder why she recommended me. <laughs> I wonder if she knows I do it. And she actually doesn't. So she had nothing to say. But there's so many ways we use our attention that can just undo us, you know? And there's a certain amount of choice involved in how we're spending our time, how we're spending our lives, how we're extending our energy. And so first I was going to ask you, do you doom scroll (laughs) the way I do sometimes?
5: Oh my God, I've never heard that phrase. I know. That term is so good. Yeah. Um, You know, I do, and I have, especially at the beginning of this pandemic and then at the start of the uprisings for Black Lives, I definitely was doing that. And I periodically... Clear up uh, my social media feed, my email subscriptions, and I start unsubscribing from anything that I feel is not really connected to the truth of belonging. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's my way of putting it right now, but it's really people who are divisive. And and that's not the same as being critical. You know, I, I love this phrase from Darwa Tarshan Phillips, Tibetan Lama Dharma teacher. He said, You can take a stand without taking a side.
1: Oh, uh-huh.
5: So I really use that as kind of my measure to understand, do I really want to keep taking this in from this person or this piece of media? So I'll, I, I do that really regularly. I also mute people. <laughs> uh-huh. So if someone is a, a doom poster You know, someone who just constantly posts. uh, And it's not even that they're negative, but they maybe they have a sense of wanting to educate or get information out there. But they're not even aware that all that they're putting out there is harsh, is negative, is upsetting, is overwhelming. In the name of sort of keeping people engaged, there's a way in which there's no uplift. And of course, the news, I mean, the news should really be called the bad news because it's not all the news. Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's it's sensational news and news that will grasp our attention which is you know either celebrity junk or usually disaster so we're not hearing about all the wonderful things going on and uh, all the advances and all the harmony and all the growth and all the spiritual expansion and awakening so yeah definitely try and limit that doom scrolling (laughs) it's such
1: a great phrase it's the best no that's beautiful because i mean it it points to how you know we need to use our awareness in very conscious ways not to be conflict avoidant and to further deny the truth of suffering because it's useless but to really create a kind of balance for ourselves so that we have the energy to care to keep caring and to Remember to include rather than exclude and and to really try to work to make this a better world. It's like you need some juice flowing for that. and, And I think that's something we just have to be conscious of.
5: Yeah. And it's up to each of us to see kind of where, which pole we, we tend towards. And if there's a version there, you know, or grasping, you know, if we want to always be in the harmonies, we're like, I'm only going to listen to good news. I, you know, good vibes only kind of a, a blatant, mm-hmm. like numbing or ignoring or shutting off of what's true of our reality too, which is suffering and injustice and oppression but we can also get caught in the other side and just doom scroll so it's always that balancing and our, our practice is so much about balancing in general
0: this next clip is from episode 132 of the Meta Hour featuring Mark Solomon it originally aired September 21st of 2020 Mark is a nationally recognized political strategist and campaign leader, with 25 years of experience in strategy, campaign management, policy development, and execution, messaging, and communications leadership, as well as field mobilization. Mark has a deep track record of assembling winning bipartisan campaigns on the most challenging issues. He was one of the key architects of the marriage equality movement and has applied lessons from it To help secure impactful criminal justice reforms, pass laws enacting automatic voter registration, advance pro-immigration policies, and build bipartisan support for ending partisan gerrymandering. In this clip, Mark shares his own process of navigating both the wins and losses of his long-term involvement in the Marriage Equality Act. He shares his tips for finding ongoing motivation and a sense of forward progress, even during the most difficult defeats along the way. Here's the
1: clip. So, across your career, you've faced many losses in your work. And I know that Proposition A prompted you to relocate from Massachusetts uh, to California, even. So, how does one recover from those kinds of setbacks? Like, where do you look for resilience?
6: Any serious, social movements of any sort, uh, has plenty of losses and, uh, mm-hmm. you're likely to lose a lot at the beginning. And, you know, it's, it's interesting in the marriage equality movement that I was a part of for 15 years. Um, initially when I first got involved, so many people said to me, uh, you're never going to win. There's no chance. This is, uh, this is impossible. Uh, why are you even bothering? The Catholic church is going to crush you and, um, and and this was including a number of LGBT people felt that way. And then at the end, when we got close to the end, at least, and it looked like things were really going our way, people were like, well, it's, this is happening on its own. It's, uh, you know, this is inevitable. So it was a great lesson to me that both uh, impossible and inevitable have something very deep in common, and that is that it allows you to not do anything. If you're sort of mm-hmm. sitting on the sidelines saying, this is never going to happen, it's impossible." don't get your hopes up. Or if you're sitting on the sidelines saying it's going to happen on its own, where my focus has always been is on the work of trying to help bring something that lots of people think is impossible to a place where it, it is close to inevitable. Over the course of that sort of period, there are plenty of losses. For me, on the issue of marriage equality I was always so inspired by my own feeling, my own quest of wanting to have the opportunity to get married and going through my, you know, late twenties, early thirties where a number of my friends, uh straight friends got married, and I was fortunate to be in their weddings and be a groomsman or a best man and having this sort of mixed feeling of, of just so happy for them and uh but also feeling that this was something that wasn't available to myself and that my own love was not um, appreciated. And then as I sort of entered into this movement, what I was just inspired by the notion of kids, young LGBT people who could have a different vision of their life. Um, and also I was inspired by older couples, couples who had been together for 40, 50 plus years, who had lived through so much of, uh, you know, so much discrimination and physical and emotional violence. And so they really kept me going. It's the vision of holding these kids and these seniors in my own um, experience helped me sort of pick back up and keep going. It wasn't always easy um, at all. Prop 8, which you mentioned, was a really especially tough one. I We'll never forget being in the Proposition 8 headquarters in November of 2008. And it was like the world around us was rejoicing because Obama (laughs) had been elected president. And yet the people of California, perceived as one of the most progressive places in the country, uh, voted to take away gay people's ability to marry and felt like we were really, you know, really second class citizens at that point. and people people forget, you know, back then even uh, Barack Obama was opposed mm-hmm. to gay people being able to marry. So that's all part of what a, uh, what a social movement is. And we picked up after that loss. There was plenty of grieving, but it also brought forth a whole new generation of activists who were ready to roll up their sleeves and go to work. Mm.
1: And in the midst of, like, the struggle or the... The long termness of it with the losses, does it feel like it's um, difficult to also take joy in the wins? I know that you have some quotes in, in the book Real Change about that very thing like, even one small win on the table every day.
6: Yeah. One way to break it down for a long fight, a long civil rights battle uh, is to, and, and this at least this is the way my mind works is, you know, I need to be able to see some. Level of forward movement. You know, so it's like, what can we accomplish this day, this month, this year that is demonstrating forward progress, even if we're going to lose seven ballot initiatives in states, you know, et cetera. So is it getting somebody who's unexpected, you know, a prominent business leader to come out and support and write an op ed piece or? Is it you know having a five percent increase in polling in, in a state so or getting a marriage bill to um, through a committee uh, so it's it's figuring out ways to break a social movement down into bite-sized pieces so that we always can have some place to uh, to focus we don't judge our wins in you know on a daily weekly basis in a sort of critical manner
1: mm-hmm yeah, because I mean, I think it it always seems like it's not enough, right? Or what we can affect in one action is just never enough, and and yet, how do we keep going? You know, how do we find resilience? We have to learn, I think, to actually take in the joy as well.
6: Yeah, and and so it is. It's definitely taking in the joy, and it's also, you know, I would often harken back to this: who am I fighting for? And uh, you know, I think about some of these gay elders who have been at it for decades and these things don't happen all at once and Uh uh, you know i look at their resilience and you know i remember this one couple in particular a a gay couple in uh, boston and i got to know them they started marching in the pride parades um, in boston pride and they carried a sign the first time I met them they carried a sign that said 47 years together and um, (laughs) so we introduced ourselves and you know it was like you know really remarkable and then I got to know them and eventually they you know Massachusetts of course was the first state and eventually they carried a sign that said 51 years uh, together one year married but they Uh... you know they talked about marching in the first prize and teachers wearing bags over their heads and being, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, having people throwing tomatoes at them and having their house vandalized and reporting it to the cops and the cops just laughed in their face. And so it was just, just being mindful of, um, where we've come from and where Mm -hmm. we're going and what the vision is. Uh, it helped make setbacks seem more like transitory things rather than, uh, you know, this is the, this is the end.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This next clip is from episode 138 of the Meta Hour featuring David Desteno. It originally aired October 29th of 2020. David is a psychologist and author who studies the ways in which emotions guide decisions and behaviors fundamental to social living. He is a professor of psychology at Northwestern University, where he directs the social emotions group. At the broadest level, his work examines the mechanisms of the mind that shape both vice and virtue, studying hypocrisy and compassion, pride and punishment, cheating and trust. His work continually reveals that human moral behavior is much more variable than most would predict. In this clip, David speaks to Sharon about perseverance, what informs the grit we have to face difficulty over time, and how the things we care the most about and have the most gratitude for ultimately serve as the best source of resilience. Here's the clip.
1: So in one of your books, Emotional Success, you focus on perseverance, and that's Mm -hmm been a really interesting topic that's come up as I've talked to different activists or people just trying to make a difference in their communities, and their families, in the world, and how do you persevere while fighting against what's conventional or taken for granted or against the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an interview recently on this podcast with a friend, Mark Solomon, who had worked for 15 years on the Marriage Equality Act before it eventually passed felt like a staggeringly long time to maintain vision and inspiration. And what are your thoughts
7: about perseverance? Yeah, the whole reason I wrote that book is because I thought the way we as a society approached the idea of perseverance was wasn't quite well rounded enough. So if you think about perseverance, people usually think about this trait called grit, right? Which is my ability to to persevere against difficulty and to work hard. And it's often talked about in terms of studying or practicing an instrument or, you know, building a successful startup or, you know, even pursuing a certain policy like the Marriage Equality Act. And people tend to think of it as this strictly kind of cognitive skill, like I'm just going to work really hard and use my willpower to focus everything. But if you really think about it, when I think about what makes people do hard things, Yeah, it can be because we think we should, but I think in some ways it's really, we do the hardest things in life because we feel we should, right? Emotions give us incredible energy. So when I think about grit, I don't think about the violin prodigies playing 10 hours a day practicing. I think about, you know, the single mom who's working two jobs to put her kids through college. I think about the grandfather who has emphysema, who's dragging the oxygen tank behind him to make sure he's going to be there for his granddaughter's first theatrical performance, right? In in high school, things that are hard to do, but we do them because we, we love people. We care about things. And so in this book, what I've done is looked at emotions like gratitude, compassion, and pride, not arrogant, hebristic pride, pride in the sense that I'm earning something, I'm doing something that's making a difference. And, And what we find is that those emotions make people willing to persevere toward their goals in a way that is much less stressful. So if you're always relying on willpower, you're always basically fighting an impulse inside of wanting to give up, saying, why am I doing this? It's, it's never going to matter to anything. It's never going to come to fruition. But I should do it. And your body's always in this state of tension. But if you cultivate emotions like gratitude or compassion or pride, and there are data to show this, we tend to value long-term goals more than immediate gratification, we tend to persevere. When I feel grateful to somebody, I will do a lot to help, to pay them back. When I feel compassion, I'll give people time, money, a shoulder to cry on to help them. When I feel proud about what I'm accomplishing, I will work hard. And so people like your friend Mark, the the long-term goal, if you're always focusing on the end result, is difficult. But if you focus on little achievements along the way, And take pride in those small achievements along the way. Feel gratitude for the people who are helping you do that. Feel compassion for the people who will be helped by the goal you're trying to achieve. Those emotions will alter your brain's assessment of how valuable that end goal is and will kind of buttress you in the stress response that you're getting and trying to to persevere toward those ends. And so, my argument is, yeah, you know, you can approach your goals and perseverance by willpower. But if you cultivate these emotional traits, they will give you more resilience along the way. They'll be healing to your body as opposed to stressful to your body along the way to achieve those goals.
0: Our final clip is from episode 129 of the Meta Hour, featuring Jana Kaiser. It originally aired October 26 of 2020. Yana is a social entrepreneur and Harvard trained educator. She has more than 20 years experience partnering with youth, adults, and communities in the pursuit of equity, justice, and peace. Yana is the founder of Global Learning, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to education for peace and justice. She's also the founder of Bahaku Boricua in collaboration with the Holistic Life Foundation. This organization brought together an international teaching team, which included Sharon, to support community healing in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. In this clip, Jana talks about the importance of joy for our ongoing capacity to sustain social engagement. And the steps to fully integrate joy into our minds and bodies here's the clip
1: because you mentioned joy and resilience I thought maybe we could talk about that for a few minutes because when I, even just I think of Puerto Rico and I think about the challenges and how many and they're so ongoing and and yet as you said that you thought of music because you're Puerto Rican and you think of joy and, and the uplifting of the spirit and Uh, There's so much conditioning here in the States of, um, or I should say the mainland probably, um, that if you're opening to joy, you're avoiding pain. And Mm -hmm. of course, that's the way it's often used. But if you're purposely trying to not avoid seeing pain and bearing witness, then it just feels wrong sometimes. Mm -hmm. And yet we have to, I think, really think about what resilience is made of and our goal, which you know, should be to have a sustained effort in some place or certainly having a sustained connection in some place. And, and what happens when we just feel depleted and burnt out and overcome and, and the things that we may need to put in place so that we don't fall sway so much to those.
8: Yeah. I think there's such wisdom in that. And certainly, you know, I think there is this misconception that when we focus on good things, that there's a kind of inherent dichotomy that then we have to close our eyes to what's bad. And for me, I think that it's more that when we resource ourselves with joy and with laughter, even in meditation, you know, when we're, for me, what's really important is um, to focus on grounding and resourcing in the body, not so that I look away from what's hard, but so that I have the capacity to sustain my gaze, you know, to have, I think that's true for all of us that if we really, you know, we I, I look at joy as a resource that it fills us up, it sustains us, it allows us to keep going when things are hard so that we can actually contribute and do the hard, courageous work that is needed for us to really create the systemic change that our world is calling for. So, yeah, I think you're completely right, That it's almost, um, I feel like my, my own meditation practice has sort of blended into the rest of my life where now, you know, I have been influenced by Rick Hansen's work and mm-hmm. his idea of, you know, staying with what's good, staying with moment, you know, getting in touch with times either real or imagined that we have felt calm or we felt safety, we felt security. and Basically, fueling our brain with those experiences so that again we have the stability and the stamina to do the big work or the small work, right? The um, what's
1: Rick's phrase? Um, The neurons that fire together Together.
8: wire together, (laughs) right?
1: Wire together. (laughs) Neurons that fire together wire together. Mm -hmm. I think part of his. Thesis is that we have a kind of conditioning, uh, as evolutionary biologists would say, to look for the danger, to look mm-hmm. for the threat, right. to look for what's wrong, and it takes a kind of intentionality to also look for what's good, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not not like force or coercion, but real intentionality. In that, we need to do that because I think, in psychological terms, it's called savoring. You know, mm-hmm. said so if if you just have like a A good experience, um, a pleasant experience, it's going to kind of pass by. But if you stop a moment and take it in, like, wow, that felt really good, then that gives you a kind of buoyancy, which allows you to see the the challenges differently from a more energized place.
8: Right, right. And it, it does so much for our bodies, too, right, of enabling our nervous systems to calm down so that then we get out of that chronic flight, fight, freeze state. And, you know, I think about it in the context of COVID, that as we're, you know, in these situations of chronic stress and our cortisol levels are high, it is so powerful to focus on, even on these bodily sensations of goodness and safety and solidity that then, can lower those cortisol levels and help our immune systems work, right? Or mm-hmm. you know, as Rick also says, of, that our brains are like Teflon for the good things and Velcro for the bad. Mm-hmm. Th- that point that you're making of that—you know—we're wired for it, and I—I I feel like that really resonates in for me for sure. And also, like in the Puerto Rican workshops that we did, we talked about that a little bit, and then did rather simple bodily kind of grounding exercises of Leslie Booker was our kind of resident leader of the mindful movement portion. And um, Booker has so many really powerful, simple um, moves of, you know, just scanning your physical space with your eyes open and breathing at the same time. And it's remarkable that even just a moment or two of that can be transformative to how we feel. And Certainly, I think in my own life, it's been the secret to feeling better physically as I've had some health issues arise. So much is wired into the nervous system. And so then we have either physical trauma or you know, these, the trauma of racism, the trauma of oppression. It's, I think, really revolutionary to counterbalance that with these body-centered practices to start to unwind some of it. It's powerful. Thanks so much for listening.
0: The paperback edition of Real Change is available on November 30th, but you can pre-order a copy today. If you'd like to continue your exploration of the book, Sharon is hosting an eight-day Real Change Challenge online from December 6 to 13, 2021. This in-depth program features a daily lesson, meditation, call to action, and more. Register now at SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease.